John, 15. We're still stuck, aren't we? <laughs> See if we can get through chapter 15. Yeah, I think we finished around verse 11. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So maybe just as it isn't our love for God that we need, but his love in us that our love can respond to. So it is his joy has to be in us. It's not our joy. It is his joy. And I've, I've experienced that, but I never thought of it in those terms. Okay, um, why don't we move to the next section, uh, verses 12 to 17. Um, Christian, you haven't read for us for a while, so why don't you read? This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. How many commands did Jesus give his disciples? Maybe two. I mean, there's this one and then like, the commission. The great commission. Can you think of any other? What about follow me? And I will make you fishers of men. Not very many, though. So, the follow me and go, therefore, and teach all nations, or make disciples of all nations, is the frame, of really, of Jesus' life. Isn't it? In terms of the disciples, that's the frame. And in the middle, this one stark, very clear command to love one another. And he doesn't say, love one another as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And now, you could say that um, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are full of commands. So there's a lot of commands that Jesus gives. But he gives it to the multitude, not just to the disciples. I mean, he is teaching the disciples, but he gives it to the multitude. All of those commands can be summarized by love, love your neighbor as yourself, can they not? Yeah. And Jesus says that's the second of the great commandments. But here Jesus moves us not higher, doesn't he, than love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another as I have loved you. If I only love my neighbor as myself, does that match loving my neighbor as Jesus loves me? Not at all. Not even close. It's an extremely difficult command. I remember sitting in Professor Jacob Milgram's class at Berkeley. Professor Milgram was a rabbi who graduated from Harvard I was sitting in his class on Leviticus, and Jesus' words, to love your neighbor as yourself, is actually quoting the Old Testament in Leviticus, Leviticus 
And we were on Leviticus 19. And we had come to verse 18. And, you know, to me, that's a no-brainer text that's like, yep, is there anything really to discuss about this or deliberate? Uh, we spent time on it. And uh, Professor Milgram went to the rabbis. And it seemed that everybody was struggling with this verse. And finally he shook his head. And he said to the class, this is a difficult verse. And, you know, you have to understand that this is, this is a hereditary that goes all the way back to Israel coming out of Egypt. Your neighbor was your enemy. Because the word, the word for, um, oh, I'm trying to think, stranger, the word for stranger is a word that means to start hostilities in its root meaning. It's sort of like gringo and guaylo. Gringo in, in, uh, in Spanish has a somewhat pejorative meaning historically. But it's, it, and depending on how it's used, it may still, but it probably doesn't have that strong pejorative meaning it used to have. And the same thing with guaylo, which is Chinese for uh, white devil. <laughs> uh, and I was assured when I was over in Hong Kong that it was not used in that sense now, <laughs> though it was used. <laughs> so it didn't necessarily mean, a stranger didn't necessarily mean someone who starts hostility, and yet the middle, in the Middle East today, you can tell, and, and things are no different back in uh, Old Testament times. In the culture, your neighbor could very well hold hide a, a sword behind his back, ready to stab you. And so, to love your neighbor as yourself, that means to put him on equal status. That means you can no longer call him your potential enemy. That's just difficult. So now when Jesus says, you shall love, love one another as I have loved you, and they're always bickering with one another, <laughs> out, trying to outshine one another, trying to to lord it over one another. And Jesus says to love them as I have loved you. That's beyond... Doesn't Jesus have a way of just putting things in an impossible reach? You remember uh, his statement about uh, not divorcing? And the disciples say, Oh no, I'm thinking of the wrong one where the disciples say, Lord, that's impossible. And Jesus says, with men, all, nothing is, this is yeah. not possible, but with God, all things are possible. It is the case that we human beings spend a long time trying to shine without being plugged in. And, and to me, that's, I know that's a, a cheap analogy to the abide in me that Jesus has been talking about here. But we do, we, tend, we try to love without being loved. We try to, to do all the things Jesus has told us to do without abiding in Him. It's just impossible. So this is difficult. It's intended to be difficult. And in case they don't get it, Jesus says no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for 
one's friends. So if you're going to love them as I love you, you need to lay down your, be willing to lay down your life for them. That's the ultimate cost. But then Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And what is he saying? Is he backing off and saying, well, you're just my friends if you do what I command you. You don't have to lay down your life. Or is he implying that if you are, that you are my friends if you lay down your life for one another? Is that part of the package? What do you think? I don't think so, because we'd still be his friend anyways. He, he still loves us. He still loves us, but to be friends, I think as Jesus is using it, is to have a level of intimacy with him. And we can be, we can, he can love us, but we not have that level of intimacy. I mean, true. was it at the Sea of Galilee that someone was asking him about... Um, his family, and he said that, who, um, like whoever keeps my commands is, is my is my. Who does does the will of my father is is my brother and my father and my brother and my sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how many sins would we overcome if we loved one another? We wouldn't. No one would rape anyone if if everybody loved one another. No one would rape. No one would steal. No one would kill. No one would abuse. No one would be an addict. We wouldn't abuse ourselves if we, if, if we loved one another because we would be loving ourselves enough to not abuse ourselves. And that's why he sums it up in those two commandments. Or like he sums up the Ten Commandments in just two. Mm-hmm. And they're both based in love. And that's why Paul says, uh, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does no harm to its neighbor. So love is the fulfilling of the whole. Any other thoughts before we move to verse 15, which to me is the capstone? I think this is chiastic structure, and I think that this is the peak. Okay, let's move to verse 15. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. Why does he say slave and this one says servant? Doulos in the Greek can mean either slave or servant. Is there a, is there a difference in the, in the status? Mm-hmm. A servant often is a hireling who gets paid for his service. He's not owned. Whereas a slave is owned and doesn't get paid. Now, 15 follows verses 12 to 14. It's like Jesus said in verses 12 to 14, the essence of everything he learned from the Father. Love one another as I have loved you. And now he says, so now I can no longer call you my servants because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I can have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I've heard from my father. And that can mean everything above. This verse is is one of those pinnacle verses in, in the Bible, isn't it? 
What does it really mean that we're no longer his servants? He no longer calls us his servants, but he calls us his friends. Well, going back to what you said earlier, it would be that the, that bond of friendship is the willingness to lay down the life for one another. And a servant doesn't necessarily think in those terms, does he? You look like you're about to say something. No, I was just thinking about what you said, or what you guys said, how the servant just comes to do what he's hired to do. Right. And that's all. Right. And the servant doesn't ask questions of the master. I was just wondering if there's anything to do with freedom. Okay, let's think about that. Is there something that has to do with freedom here? Why does Jesus say, because I have made known to you everything I've heard from my Father? Like, that's what makes them his friends. Because what the Father taught was love. And he needs love in him. So, with the love, the love of the Father, um, think back to John 8, 32. Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. See, a servant isn't just hired and therefore doesn't, isn't fully free. A servant doesn't know what his master is doing, and he doesn't dare ask. The master may choose to divulge something to him, but the servant cannot act on that knowledge. It's really, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir, so, sir, I will do so, sir. When Israel at the foot of Sinai, instead of saying, yes, Lord, we'll trust you to fulfill your covenant, they said, all the Lord has said we will do. They were acting like good slaves. That's how a slave behaves. What is the difference? Because 14 says, you're my friends if you do whatever I command you. Yeah, and it sounds like he's being the master, isn't Do this. Go do that. <laughs> But then 15, they're friends because he's made all things known that his father's made known to him. Can you imagine how Jesus must have hated to say, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you? Like I shouldn't need commanding. You can't command love. Love can't be commanded. You don't get it that way. But because his disciples were closer to being servants than to being friends, Jesus mixes the language up. But I think it just it mostly points back to the fact that he's trying to trying to demonstrate the level of intimacy he wants to have with them, and that he's trying to give them an example of what they should have for one another, and he's trying to like. And so that's why he's trying to elevate their status, so to speak. Um, that they're not servants, that they shouldn't be. Because they, they, can't, they can't truly love if they're thinking as themselves as servants. Oh, that's powerful. 
can, can you unpack that a little yeah. bit? I mean, because like, well, as servants, you're you're mostly just kind of like you're in your own sphere, you're in your own little area, and you work within that, and you do your job, and then that's and that's it. You can't you can't dare, like you said, you can't dare question the master. You can't dare develop a relationship with the master at all. No. But if you become a friend, you're kind of you've been liberated outside of that little sphere. And you're able, you're more of a free agent to be able to go into. And and woe to the person like Hagar, who probably was somewhat reared by Sarah, or Sarai, as she's yeah. called in that part of the text. And and she trusts her surrogate mother slash mistress, mm-hmm. and then she gets ordered into Abraham's tent. And then she's not going to get to keep the child. Because in the in legal traditions of the ancient Near East, uh, if the a woman chose her servant to be her surrogate, uh, it was something like what we do today with surrogate mothers. Mm-hmm. She would bear the child for Sarah, and Sarah would legally own that child. That's what makes the story of Hagar so powerful: is that when Hagar gets out in the desert, she meets this God who says. This is your son. Mm-hmm. And name him Ishmael. And now she has to go da- go home and tell Sarah and Abraham, this is my child, not yours. God met me and told me. So that, that intimacy, even if a slave really did develop intimacy, there's a ceiling on it. There's a, there's a, a limit to what could possibly happen. And by the time Jesus' day, I doubt if very many slaves or servants developed into a relationship with their master on any level. People were objects by Jesus' day. It's very close to what we're dealing with today. And we don't have to be slaves, per se, to, to lack that intimacy, to lack that, that bonding of relationships. And in... In steps to Christ, doesn't I don't know why I talk about like how God operates in terms of like with prayer that He doesn't operate by coming down to our level, but that He always elevates us. No, prayer does not bring us up. Prayer does not bring God down to us. It brings us up to God. Uh, and what she means by that, I think, is is best illustrated by contrasting Israel with Babylonian texts. If you if you do a compare and contrast of Babylonian hymns and prayers. This is old to Carlos. He's been in Babylon in the Bible class a quarter. <laughs> if you compare and contrast these texts, the Babylonians are always trying to bring the gods down to them. Everything they do is in an effort to do that, uh, to get the gods to listen, to get the gods to do what is nice things for them, not be angry with them, etc., etc. So disturbing. We're like that, you mm-hmm. <laughs> I just seen like what they were trying to do, oh. and then how they had the option of of God right there, who was there. Yeah, and and then you go to the Psalms, and you get a completely different feeling, an, a feeling of intimacy that you don't get in the Babylonian hymns and prayers. Am I right? From, from I, I gave them only a few hymns and prayers to read. Uh, okay. so. It was interesting what she said about the disturbing part because that fits into the whole theme of the gods not being able to sleep. 
<laughs> yeah, the gods got disturbed very easily. By <laughs> and when they couldn't sleep, they wanted to kill their kids. So to speak. Yeah. Yeah, and the gods seemed to be very sleep deprived and de desperate for sleep all the time. Wow. So they built Babylon so they could sleep. <laughs> And, and so God comes along in Isaiah and he says, I don't slumber or sleep. <laughs> I don't need sleep. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I'm not Babylonian. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, so many things come to my mind when I think of servants versus friends. Yeah. Uh, to fully unpack that and get every nugget out of it. A servant doesn't think you can't have an intimate relationship if you can't think about what the other person has said and respond. And, and if you can't disagree with them, how much intimacy do you have? I just keep thinking about Joseph. I feel like there was some, but there was still that boundary because he couldn't... The pattern. Yeah. And like when she accused him, yeah. he had to... Yeah, he was. That, that's a good example of someone who had gotten trusted with Potiphar's whole house. No one knew the affairs of Potiphar better than Joseph. And here is Joseph, suddenly dumped out into prison. So he's he's no longer even a slave. He's a prisoner. No status at all. Wait. So in in Revelation, like one of the first few verses that John writes. Doesn't he call himself the, his um, Christ bondservant? Mm -hmm. So is that different? Well, Paul calls himself slave of Jesus Christ. What do you think they mean by the term? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in like in a measure of worth, in a sense, or like that they feel so low, lowly, because of their sin in comparison to Christ. Actually. Um, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. I think what it is, the disciples just have a very hard time thinking of themselves in Jesus' terms. I, I think it's, it's so ingrained in them and their society to be slaves of, of someone above them. And they don't want to lose that sense that Jesus is above them. Mm -hmm. they're, they're actually afraid to think of themselves as his friends because then that puts them on equal a level, especially as Jesus uses the term. Now, now, we need to review something that I've mentioned before. And that is that word friend was co-opted in the Roman Empire, not to mean someone of intimacy, but a client who served a patron in exchange for the patron helping the client. So when Jesus says, this is my commandment, let's see, that you love one another as I've loved you, you are my friends if you do what I command you. When he says that line, he's sounding just like anybody in his day who has this patron-client relationship. is a little bit off topic, but what you were saying about how they wanted to keep the idea of, you know, the Father and Jesus being higher. 
I feel like today we've lost that because now we're all like, let's be friends. And and especially I think here at PUC, there's this culture of, um, you know, Jesus is a friend, you know? Instead of having this idea that he's higher than us. We've so how can we be both? How does that work? Could it could it be that like what you were talking about them saying I'm a slave of Christ? Could it be that they're a slave of Christ in the sense that I'm a slave because I follow this because there's no other better alternative in the sense that like just like how those slave doesn't have another alternative because I've learned about this I don't have another alternative to. Can you be enslaved to something because you love it so much? You could. Mm-hmm. See, that's how I see the other disciples using it. I think Paul is actually tongue-in-cheek slave of Jesus Christ. Because as a, being a slave of Jesus Christ meant being set free to Paul. Paul makes that abundantly clear in the book of Romans where he calls himself a slave. Mm-hmm. So I, I see that as kind of Paul tongue-in-cheek saying slave of Jesus Christ because he set me free. <laughs> but I want to come back to what you're saying. How can we both see, be friends of someone who is above us and keep that in perspective? So your parents and a child, I'm your friend, but I'm your mother. You know, I I only rarely got reminded of that as a child. And my my mom was a pretty good friend. But if I gave back talk, I got reminded quite quite quickly. Does the parent remind the child to exert their superiority or to protect the child from a dangerous trend because if if the child continues being able to talk back to people older than them and wiser than them they're going to really hit hard knocks and they're going to find themselves unable to relate to people see even as a friend I don't talk back to my friends do I? So is there anything different about a relationship with a superior and a relationship with a friend when it comes to courtesy, politeness, respect? I always think of this when we talk about taking God's name in vain. Oh my, and you know what that blank is. I always think, you know, I don't say, oh my, Barbara. Yeah. I think that the problem isn't that we are too much a friend of Jesus, that we don't know what friendship is. That we don't have Jesus' kind of friendship. And I think that um, if we had Jesus' kind of friendship, we would know how to treat one another. Because we know how He treats us. That love one another as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? Has he ever disrespected us? Has he ever mistreated us? Has he ever taken our name in vain? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, when you were talking about how we hug, we can be both, 
the example that came to my mind was um, maybe because I'm also in this class of Moses, just because of how like he he always sought for like a greater intimacy with God. I mean, like right after. The, I mean, God still says, "Take off your shoes because you're yeah. standing on holy ground." So and the next few verses, he starts arguing with God. No, I don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So there's their intimacy, and yet there's this, this boundary. And the boundary is to protect Moses. Yeah. It's about his protection. It isn't about my asserting my authority as God, so to speak. I'm speaking in terms of a God at the, at the burning bush. So God isn't asserting his authority. He's protecting Moses. Because this is holy ground. See, the words of, of Desire of Ages to me are so important here. Love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. That's the only way you get it. So when Jesus is talking to his disciples... He's pushing them as far as they can go toward understanding this. But they can't grasp it fully. When the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says, and we're going to come to this, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. And He will share the things you couldn't bear now. Let's move to verse 16, because I, I want to close as soon as possible. And I do want to get through this <laughs> paragraph. <laughs> You did not choose me, but I chose you. That has huge meaning. <laughs> it's, it's the encapsulation of the God of the Old Testament. The, one, the initiator of relationships. The one who's always calling people out into a relationship with him. It's the total opposite of the Babylonian gods, whom the people were constantly calling to a relationship and not getting a response. That's a hard one too. You can imagine you'd be like somebody and tell him, you don't choose me, I choose you, and would stay with me. <laughs> That's Go, but, but, but it's, the, it's, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's not a, intended to be an arbitrary, authoritarian statement. That's a statement yeah. of friendship. I chose yeah. you as my friend. You did not choose me. Which means, I loved you first. I loved you first. So I'm not asking you to do something I haven't already done. Just respond to my love. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit. What is that? I'm pointing you to be yourself. This is how I grew you. This is how I made you. Go be what you are. Fruit that will last. So the Father will give you whatever you ask Him in my name. I'm giving you these commands that you may love one another. Fruit of following of Jesus' choice and appointment is to love. That means His choice and His appointment are rooted in His love for us. They are manifestations of how much He loves us. Over the years of teaching Sabbath classes, the text I have worn out, but will never wear out. I'll never stop using the most. 
is we love because he first loved us. That is a law. That is a law that works as powerfully as the law of gravity. In fact, more powerfully. The law of gravity works on the principle of attraction, of drawing to itself. That principle is the principle of the government of God. He works on the principle of attraction, of drawing us into His love so that we can love Him and love one another. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have been with us this morning as we have talked about things that we really only dimly grasp. We ask that you will help us to see your love and to understand it and to experience it as fully and completely as you want to have us experience it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.